It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Friday, August 13th, 2021. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. Happy Friday to all of you across this great nation and around the world. We do have some international listeners. I hear from them occasionally. We appreciate you tuning in. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday. The podcast, for those of you who missed the live broadcast, also available on demand. Round the clock, seven days a week because we have bonus Benson on the weekends. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com, all the information there. If you're looking for the podcast, you can go there or FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your free podcasts. As for listening live, many options are great affiliates, the Fox app, Fox Nation, our friends at Odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y.com. You've got options. Also, a reminder, you can enjoy many of your favorite original podcasts from Fox News Podcasts without commercials. That's available now on Apple Podcasts. You hear from names like Dana Perino, Brett Bayer, Shannon Bream, Trey Gowdy, Martha McCallum, and many more. Subscribers receive early access to seasonal Fox series on Fox News Investigates, plus bonus episodes from Fox News Radio's talk shows, including this one. You get audio versions of popular Fox News channel programs over on the TV side, and a variety of long-form interviews. It's all just $2.99 a month, $2.99 per month, or $29.99 a year. That's over 30 original podcasts and Fox News talk radio shows, bonus content, totally ad-free on Apple Podcasts. Here's today's lineup on The Guy Benson Show, General Jack Keane. He's been all over TV the last 24 hours or so, talking about the meltdown in Afghanistan. It is heartbreaking to watch. I think even people who were gung-ho for the war to end and for the U.S. presence to be over, the way it's going down is worse than I think a lot of people had even feared. And General Keene will have his reaction and analysis here later this hour. Starting the next hour, Dr. Nicole Sapphire will be here. I've got a number of questions for her, pressing pertinent questions about coronavirus. She has been a steady and reliable voice on that front now for many months, and we look forward to our latest installment with her. Joe Concha will also be here talking about the media. That's his beat. We'll talk about CNN and the Cuomos, a few other topics to get to with Joe. Michael Guns Gunzelman making his debut on the program later, talking about the Britney Spears developments and a few other cultural issues. And last but not least, at the very end of the show, our home stretch, which is our final segment of each show, which get all put together, the best of the best for bonus Benson over the weekends on the podcast, today's home stretch will be especially poignant, I would say, as we are bidding farewell to a valued member, a beloved member of our team here at The Guy Benson Show, and I will do my best to keep it together. (laughs) Just, like, power through. You cannot just 
devolve into tears on live radio. So we'll do our best. That's all coming up. Fox News alert as we begin. Stats. Coronavirus cases. The case count cumulatively in the United States, 60, or excuse me, 36.4 million. The real number is much higher. I started to say 60 million. It's way higher than 60 million. It's almost certainly over than 100 million. And larger than that number. That's what the experts have been telling us now for a long time. But officially, the case count, based on confirmed tests, positive tests, 36.4 million. The death toll in the United States, it's millions around the world, but here in the U.S., the death toll from COVID, 619,723. On Wall Street, the closing bell is 49 minutes away and change. It's currently a mixed day on Wall Street. The Dow is right now up by three points, so barely in the green, right now trading at 35,503. And we'll see how the trading week ends up on Wall Street at the top of the hour. And we'll bring you that number when we return for our middle hour here on the show. Now, there's an interesting development here in Washington, D.C., I'm back. I was in New York the last couple days filling in for Kennedy on TV. I'll be back in New York for some TV duties next week. But it's good to be home in the Washington, D.C. area once again. And this broke while I was on the train heading south. Some trouble in paradise for the Democrats and for Speaker Pelosi in particular in the House of Representatives. So let's sort of reset the table and remind you recapping where things currently stand on these huge spending bills. You've got the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which we've talked about here. There are pluses, there are minuses. I think that it's defensible in some ways. I think it really misses the mark on being fully paid for, which is what they were promising. In any case, it is at least real infrastructure, not this fake, made-up version of infrastructure that the Democrats have been pushing. It's a bipartisan bill about half of which is new spending, less than half of which is really, truly paid for. But that passed the Senate easily, handily. 69 to 30 was the vote earlier this week. Then you've got that now passed out of the Senate. The Senate voted again the next day, this was also earlier this week, to advance this reconciliation process. It's really just sort of like a legislative framework. They didn't vote on any bill on the $3.5 trillion spending bonanza from the Democrats, but they advanced it. It was a procedural vote, really. And that was exactly along party lines, with the Democrats having that 50-plus-1 majority in the Senate because Republicans couldn't get their act together in Georgia, and they blew both of those seats. That's why we're dealing with any of this, frankly. And so $3.5 trillion is just an astounding amount of money, and it is new spending. This is not like the next year's budget for the entire federal government. This is on top of that. This is $3.5 trillion in new spending on top of the annual budgets, on top of the emergency spending, trillions of it during the pandemic, including more trillions at the beginning of the Biden administration, on top of the bipartisan infrastructure spending, this is $3.5 trillion more. And before I get to the new pickle that Pelosi finds herself in, I just want to emphasize a point that I've alluded to a few times this week. The Wall Street Journal had an editorial on this. 
the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget actually looked at this $3.5 trillion proposal, and they ran the math and found that the real cost of the $3.5 trillion would in fact be $5 trillion or more. Why? Because what the Democrats are going to do, or they're going to try to do, is make the bill look a little bit less expensive by making certain expenditures quote-unquote temporary. And they're already announcing that they plan to make them permanent later, but for the purposes of doing the math and like the scoring from the CBO and scorekeepers, they're going to say, no, no, it's only temporary spending, so they can keep the number at $3.5 trillion. And this nonpartisan group went through and looked at the actual realistic number, and they said it would end up being roughly 5 to $5.5 trillion in new spending over the next decade. But they need to make it, they have to camouflage it to make it look like $3.5 trillion with all these gimmicks and schemes in order to allow the reconciliation process to move forward so they could do it all on a party-line basis with not a single Republican in support. And I wrote about this today at the tip sheet at townhall.com. Now, we already knew that there was a complication in the Senate in that, yes, Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin, these more moderate Democrat senators, they voted with Chuck Schumer to advance the procedural vote on reconciliation, but they have both come out against the $3.5 trillion number. They say it's too high. Joe Manchin put out a whole statement about it. He's very concerned, he says, about the debt and the lack of pay-fors and all this stuff. His number, he's at least indicating, would have to be a lot lower. How much lower, we don't know. My expectations aren't that amazing for him, but it seems like he wants to say 3.5 is way too much. Kirsten Cinema has said the same thing. Now, when you go to the House of Representatives, right, you go down the hall, the other side of Capitol Hill, what Nancy Pelosi has done, and she's been threatening this and vowing that this is what she would do now for weeks, she has said, okay, that's fine, that's cute that the Senate has passed this bipartisan infrastructure bill, Her progressives don't like it. Her progressives are very skeptical of that bill. They hate that it's bipartisan. They think it should be a lot bigger. And they're worried that if it gets passed, then you'll have less left-wing Democrats, less willing to spend even more money on other things through the reconciliation Democrat-only side of it. So Pelosi said, here's what we're going to do. You've passed your little bipartisan bill out of the Senate. I'm going to take that and put it on ice over here. So it's going to cool over here on ice. I'm not interested in that. We are going to do the reconciliation first. The reconciliation multi-trillion dollar orgy of spending with only Democratic votes. That has to come first. And then if we get that done, then we'll get to passing the bipartisan thing out of the House. And that can become law. And that's a way that she's trying to appease her progressives. And look, she's a left winger too. Pelosi's not some moderate. Right. But she's got this contingent even further to the left than her. And she quite frequently is catering to them. But now she has a new problem because some moderates in the House and I'm using the term moderate pretty loosely here. It's all relative. But nine Democratic moderates who are vulnerable, who are in tough districts, They have now signed a letter officially today threatening to withhold their support for the budget resolution, the big one, unless Pelosi changes her strategy and allows the House to first vote on the bipartisan infrastructure plan. 
that the Senate passed. Here's one line from their letter. Nine Democrats in the House. Quote, we will not consider voting for a budget resolution until the Bipartisan Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act passes the House and is signed into law. We will not consider voting for a budget resolution until dot, dot, dot. So they're saying, and they know that they've got leverage now, they're flexing their muscles saying, Nancy, depending on attendance on any given day, you could only lose three or four or five votes. It is that razor thin. Republicans made real gains in the House in 2020, and the majority is very tenuous for Nancy Pelosi. In the past, she's had a much bigger sort of cushion to work with. Not anymore. So these nine moderates are saying, nope. We know what you told us. Your plan to make the squad happy is to do the giant spending thing first and then the bipartisan deal. We say bipartisanship first and then we'll consider whatever comes down the pike on this reconciliation thing. And there's nine of them. And if they stick to their word, that is enough to tank the whole process. Republicans are going to uniformly vote against the budget resolution. Pelosi cannot afford nine defectors she can't afford six or seven defectors and they've put this in writing so this could really cause a problem for the vote tallying for nancy pelosi because aoc is out there speaking on behalf of the the squad and the hardcore leftists she's furious at these democrats she calls them conservative house democrats like it's an epithet she tweets let's stop pretending that dems who threatened to tank the president's agenda kill child care, Medicare expansion, and work with the GOP to expand the cruelest parts of our immigration system are moderate. They're not moderate. They're conservative. It was clear from the beginning that the way a skinny bill gets a shot is if it's part of the larger infrastructure package. Voting on the skinny lobbyist-friendly bill first gives conservatives leeway to hurt the larger infrastructure bill, meaning the fake infrastructure bill, human infrastructure, with child care, Medicare, climate, etc. She says, nope. And then she has an emoji of her making an X with her arms. So she's attacking the vulnerable members of her own party. She's in a safe district. Deep, 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 deep blue. These other people are not. They want to go with the bipartisan bill first. She hates that bill. She hates Republicans. She hates anything to do with Republicans. She wants to expand all these other government programs in a way that is completely unaffordable and unsustainable. And she's furious that these moderates are willing to play ball with the Republicans, saying they're cruel and immigration, they're so cruel, and they're going to kill all this other stuff. They want to expand. We need to expand Medicare. Medicare is going broke. It's going to be insolvent. They want to expand it, which is nuts. And she's saying this is just a Trojan horse. If you go this with the bipartisan plan first, then they're going to shrink down and make skinnier this other plan that we want, and she's rejecting it. And she's doing it pretty forcefully and angrily. So this is an intransigent problem right now for Nancy Pelosi. What does she do? She can't afford to lose any number of votes from either of her coalitions. And you have one group saying, we insist it go this way, and the other group saying, nope, if that's the case, we're tanking the whole thing. What will Pelosi do? I have a few theories. I'll get to them as soon as we return. It's the Guy Benson Show, big Friday program ahead. Stay with us. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Generation of talk. Guy Benson. 
Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. Coming up, General Jack Keane on the situation in Afghanistan. That's next. I just want to finish up this thought on the new dilemma for Nancy Pelosi because it's now official. We'd heard rumors that some of the moderates or more moderate members of her caucus were not happy with her decision to hold the bipartisan infrastructure deal hostage and move forward the huge Democrat-only bill first. And now it's official. It's formalized. They signed their name, nine of them, to a letter saying, we're not going to do it. We won't even consider voting for the budget resolution unless we get first the bipartisan bill signed into law by President Biden. That is a specific threat. AOC and the squad, I've seen them raging. I've seen them whining. I've seen them sort of threatening. I have not seen an explicit threat. I could have missed it. I have not seen an explicit threat from AOC saying, if Pelosi gives in to the moderates, we will be the ones who tank the whole process. They've sort of suggested and implicated Right, that's the that's the implication that we're going to do this, but they haven't actually formally done so. Right, in a formal sense, the way that the moderates have now done. I wouldn't be surprised if they do, unless it's sort of just a head fake or a bluff. And I think that's what Pelosi has to be counting on. She is good at counting votes, twisting arms. Again, she has a much thinner margin of error than she has in the past. Like on Obamacare, she could allow dozens of her members to vote no and still pass it. Pelosi has shown, and I made this point yesterday, she is willing to destroy a temporary Democratic majority and get crushed in an election if the payoff is a huge growth in government. I think that's her calculus again here. The math might be harder, though. I'm not popping the popcorn yet. I think it could get ugly. I think there could be a lot of recriminations and and battling behind the scenes and out in public as well. I'm not necessarily voting against Pelosi because I think some of this might be for show where everyone says, like, look, I'm going to stand my ground. And then they come to some sort of agreement where no one's fully happy, but a huge amount of money gets spent and everyone sort of declares a little bit of victory. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. But if they really dig in, this could be a serious challenge for the Democrats, and it really could unravel. We shall see. We'll be watching closely here in D.C. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. 
From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of the story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. GuyBensonShow.com Back on The Guy Benson Show, as we watch what's happening in Afghanistan... Let's listen to a flashback. This was an interview or a back and forth between a reporter and President Biden just last month talking about the threat of a Taliban takeover of the nation in Afghanistan. Cut 11. This was last month. Is a Taliban takeover of Afghanistan now inevitable? No, it is not. Because you have the Afghan troops have 300,000 well-equipped, as well-equipped as any army in the world, and an Air Force, against something like 75,000 Taliban. It is not inevitable. Do you trust the Taliban, Mr. President? Do you trust the Taliban, sir? Is that a serious question? It's absolutely a serious question. Do you trust the Taliban? No, I do not. No, I do not trust the, the Taliban. I trust the capacity of the Afghan military who is better trained, better equipped, and more, re- more competent in terms of conducting war. Well, that seemed to be uh, highly, highly optimistic, even Pollyannish, based on the results that we're now seeing. Late yesterday, Kandahar, the second largest city in Afghanistan, has fallen, and now the U.S. is evacuating its people out of Kabul, the capital. It looks like... It, in fact, is inevitable that the Taliban is going to take over the entire country and really, really fast. Joining us now is General Jack Keane, a retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War and Fox News senior strategic analyst. General, it's good to have you here, albeit under very sad circumstances. I agree with that. Always delighted to be with you, though. So let's begin with sort of a skeptical question from people or from the vantage point of people who are saying, look, this is very sad to see. Uh, It's embarrassing for the country. It's going to be horrible for people in Afghanistan, especially, you know, women and children. We're already hearing terrible stories about what's going to happen to young girls. But the fact that the U.S. is now getting out, it was a long time coming. And Biden just talked about, you know, all the troops and all the equipment and all the training that they have to stand up on their own. And they're just melting in the face of the Taliban. And it looks like it could be a rout in in very short order. Is that not proof that this whole project was never really going to work? And shouldn't we just cut our losses? What's your response when someone says something or or offers that perspective? Yeah, well. Certainly reasonable people um, can be on both sides of this issue in, in terms of, one, just getting out of Afghanistan completely after 20 years or the other. Where I am, uh, what, what, what I see is we had a fairly stable situation, not a perfect situation, but a fairly stable situation in the stalemate that existed in Afghanistan. And by that I mean is the Afghan security forces – uh, with U.S. air power and the robust intelligence that uh, we helped provide them, was was certainly not strong enough to defeat the Taliban, uh, nor was the Taliban uh, capable of taking over Afghanistan. And, and, and that sort of status quo has existed for a number of years. Um, and 
what that what that provided us is the, the the continued reason why we have forces in Afghanistan is to make certain that Afghanistan itself uh, is not taken over by the Taliban and becomes an epicenter for international terrorism and particularly the rise again of the of Al Qaeda. And it's for most of us who have some working um, knowledge of, of Afghanistan uh, know full well that if the Taliban take over, it's indisputable that uh, international terrorism would, would, would return. And, and, and that, I think, is unacceptable to the security of the American people. So the argument is, if the Taliban takes over Afghanistan, and at this point it doesn't really seem like an if, does it? I mean, it's, it's like when the Taliban takes over, you're going to have all these atrocities, they're executing members of the government, it's going to get worse. Anyone suspected of helping the Americans at any point from the last 20 years, they're going to get executed probably, you know, on TV and, you know, in public. They're uh, kidnapping young girls and forcing them into child bride situations for these Taliban fighters. I mean, it's going to be a catastrophe in Afghanistan. There's no question about that, a humanitarian disaster uh, and really terrible to watch. And you might have people, again, sort of like a cold-eyed view of this saying that's horrible we're very sorry that it's happening but that's not necessarily a reflection of american interest and you're saying that the american interest in preventing this is not just the humanitarian stuff but if the taliban if and when the taliban takes over we'll be back to sort of the pre-9-11 scenario where a terrorist organization is running a whole country and allowing other terrorist organizations to come and train and thrive and grow and develop you know, uh, plans to then attack Westerners and foreigners and, in fact, inside the United States, which is exactly what happened leading up to 9-11, then on 9-11. It's just sort of like the cycle reboots itself, right? That's the concern. Yeah. No, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> that, that obviously, yes, yes, is the case. And, and the United States military and our intelligence service uh, totally advised uh, uh, President Biden of, of of these harsh realities, and that that is why they were supporting keeping this modest force there. Um, President Biden chooses, as did uh, President Trump, use the term the end, endless wars. Um, but the fact is, is that we are fighting what most people accept as a general principle of. A multi-generational war dealing with radical Islam. And we've been at it for 20 years, since 9-11. I think one of the things that, he, that has happened is our, how to deal with this war. We have learned quite a bit through the years, and, and how we approach it has evolved quite a bit. And I think it's, it, it, it's pretty sobering and somewhat sophisticated uh, where we are now. And here's what I mean. There's 40 to 50 radical Islamic movements in the world out there. Um, they certainly don't have the status that they formerly had, al-Qaeda formerly had, uh, pre-9-11, and they don't have the status that ISIS had uh, in 2014. But nonetheless, they are, they are a danger. However, there's only five places that the United States has any interest in 
because in those places, the radical Islamist groups have aspirations to attack Americans and to attack America's homeland. And those places are Iraq, Syria, Yemen, East Africa, and yes, Afghanistan. And, and what they all five have in common is the Islamic group there would attack the United States given the freedom to do that. And that is why we stay engaged. And it's a recognition that it is a multi-generational involvement, and we keep a very modest amount of forces engaged in that. We're talking about less than 10,000 completely dealing with the, the entire scope of radical Islam. And that's that, I think is a pretty sophisticated way to deal with this problem. So, General, let me, let me just jump in. And, and to that point. I just want to Go ask ahead. you this. Do you think the fact, because if you look at public opinion polling, it's a pretty popular bipartisan thing for the U.S. to pull out of Afghanistan. A lot of Americans are just uh, tired of being over there. They think it's been far too long. Do you think part of the reason that those numbers are as high and are so bipartisan is an element that we've been so successful at stopping large-scale terrorist attacks against Americans for so many years that the threat feels much more distant and therefore people are willing, more willing to say, all right, you know, let's pull up our stakes and get out. And could that change? Could sentiment change quickly, God forbid, if there is another successful major attack against Americans? Oh, yeah, that would flip entirely if, if we... What, what we have successfully prevented is an attack from foreign soil on the United States of America, which is what 9-11 was all about. And the, the, the forces that have been engaged in Afghanistan are to be commended for having achieved that. And it, it came out of sacrifice, for sure. Multiple thousand killed and... Uh, uh, 20,000 or so actually wounded, somewhat um, uh, catastrophic wounds that will stay with them forever. And certainly the sacrifice of our families. Yes, that that has been accomplished. We believe it needs to be sustained if you're on my side of the ar argument. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm certainly sympathetic to people who believe we should get out after 20 years, and that's a long time. And, yeah, and also the uh, money, right? That's, I mean, blood is number one. Yeah. Treasure is also uh, part of this equation. Let me ask you this, because you know, you've made your case for why you're on the other side of this argument, and I think you've made it well. I think people should listen and really consider what you have to say, because you know a lot about this stuff. You're not sort of winging it. This is something you've dedicated your life to. You're deeply informed. And even if they disagree, I think, I hope people will respect your opinion. I think the next question becomes, though, we've now had back-to-back-to-back -back presidents who have campaigned on disengagement in the region. Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and now Joe Biden. And it, they were campaigning on it, because I think to some extent they believed it, and also because they can read the polls like everyone else. They recognize this was politically popular. Your side of this argument clearly did not prevail. The decision was made to draw down and now to completely get out. Once that decision was made from the top levels, uh, policymakers, you know, and obviously it's the Biden team that's doing this. They're presiding over it. I know they're trying to pretend sort of like they're going to wash their hands of this. It's not their problem. Of course it's their problem. They're, they're the ones in charge 
making this call and everything that happens, uh, they're going to have to answer for it one way or another. But once the die was cast, once the decision was made, all right, we are getting out of Afghanistan, that's the decision. I wonder, just strategically speaking, could this have been done in a better, smarter way to avoid what seems to be just an extremely rapid circling of the drain here? And I hate to say it, but it feels like a national humiliation and and a disgrace yeah. and a waste of so much sacrifice. If the decision was made, and obviously it has been, to go this direction, were there ways that they could have planned this a lot better to mitigate and possibly prevent what we're seeing happening in real time happening very quickly? Oh, yeah, most definitely. I mean... This serious, President Biden's made some serious miscalculations here in not really coming to grips, you know, with with the consequences of what a withdrawal decision is. And what am I talking about? I I think this is an ill-conceived, hasty withdrawal that's now turned into an embarrassing retreat. And yes, you can compare it to what happened in Saigon in 1975. I mean, what is so sad about this, it, you know, it, is that this could have been prevented. I mean, the, the, the reality How? is, it, 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 give me a second. In, in the IG report that came out of the Pentagon in the last two weeks, the IG, the Inspector General, identified the fact that the Taliban began, began their offensive campaign in May, in, in May one month after the Biden announcements to withdraw, and it was the catalyst for, for what we are seeing take place today. And, and why is that? Because the Taliban knew full well, Guy, that for the United States to withdraw by 31 August, the announcement being made in April, to close seven military bases, that the United States military would be fully involved and turning those bases over, closing them, and moving those resources, and providing, during this period, no support to help the Afghan security forces. They knew that. And that is why that offensive began in May, and and because there's been no time and no resources to provide to the Afghan security forces from the U.S. military, particularly decisive air support, as as a result of that, you're seeing this rapid collapse because the Afghan forces have imploded without the air support that they've used to stop Taliban offensives in previous years. That's not there. They have also an an issue of will as a result of losing the U.S. support. You see this rapid collapse. That, That could have been avoided by doing just thinking through the problem and, and making one, the condition I want to leave Afghanistan, but I don't want the Taliban to take over because that's going to cause a major problem for us in terms of security uh, along the lines that I said. And then number two, come to the decision that you're not going to make conduct a withdrawal of, of U.S. forces during the height of the fighting season, which is in the summer. The fighting season starts in the spring and lasts through the fall. And then when winter begins, the Taliban pack up and go back across the border to Pakistan, and and the next offensive begins in the spring. Everybody's known that these are seasonal wars. So we should be pulling out in the wintertime when the Taliban are not on the battlefield. 
And that all right. So that so the timing should have been established. Yes, the timing seems to have been foolish. And then the first part of that answer again, you are the expert as a retired four star general. I am just some you know armchair general here sitting asking questions. But it seems relatively obvious. I think this is true for many Americans. Even if you support the withdrawal and getting out, telling the enemy explicitly this is what we're going to do exactly when we're going to do it, exactly how we're going to do it, and the things that we are not going to do to push back against anything that the Taliban tries. It's just like giving them a roadmap to take over, which seems insane. And now we're living through, and the Afghan people and a lot of others are living through the consequences, and we're seeing it beamed into our homes in real time. And it's, it's, I would call it shocking, uh, but unfortunately, it's not, given everything that you just described. General, we've got to leave it there for now. We're up on a break. It's General Jack sure. Keen, retired four-star general, uh, Fox News senior strategic analyst. Um, we will definitely have you back, sir, to talk about this and some other issues because, uh, unfortunately, the situation is deteriorating rapidly. And, and so perhaps we'll be doing an after-action uh, post-mortem of this thing soon. I hope that's not the case, but that's the way that trajectory the momentum feels dr or general keen always appreciate your time thank you great talking to you guy and your audience we'll take a quick break we'll be right back it's the guy benson show energetic informed fast-paced guy benson show Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. It's the Guy Benson Show. We just spoke with the general. We got a doctor in the house coming up starting our next hour. I saw this horrible story out of Florida. Four Broward County teachers have died within the last two days including some people, I think one of them was in their 20s, one in their 30s. I mean, just horrible. Very, very sad. And instantly people started blaming, of course, Ron DeSantis, talking about masks and children, and this is this is the problem with politicizing everything. None of the four teachers who died caught COVID in schools. Schools hadn't opened when they caught COVID. They got it on summer break. Three of the four are unvaccinated, the fourth is believed to be unvaccinated, who died. This has nothing to do with children wearing masks or not. But people want to rush to that to make their political point. And it's actually pretty ghoulish. The Guy Benson Show continues next. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. Our middle hour is now upon us. Welcome in. It's the Guy Benson Show. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free every single day. Fox News alert as we begin the middle hour. The Dow closes up 15 points, a record high close for the Dow Jones Industrial Average, 35,515. Joining us now is Dr. Nicole Sapphire. 
She's a board-certified medical doctor, senior Fox News medical contributor, a best-selling author. Most recently, her newest book is Panic Attack. She and I spoke on TV last night, and now we're back on the radio. And actually, we're going to do the same thing with Joe Concha later this hour. Doctor, it's great to have you here. Thank you. Friday the 13th, great day to be on the radio. (laughs) Absolutely. So there was this tweet that you took issue with uh, about babies and young children. This is from an association of pediatricians in the U.S. saying that babies and young children study faces, I'm quoting, so you may worry that having masked caregivers would harm children's language development. There are no studies to support this concern. Young children will use other clues, like gestures and tone of voice. And, you know, as a layperson, I looked at that tweet, and I certainly had some questions about the logic there. As a doctor, why were you so put off by what they tweeted? (laughs) I mean, I, I can tell you it certainly wasn't me alone that was put off. Um, I saw the vitriol from healthcare workers everywhere about the tweet from the American Academy of Pediatrics. And, you know, it's just becoming blatantly obvious to us that we don't actually have an organization that seems to be advocating for our children anymore. When it comes to the policies going forth in the schools, the children are at the mercy of the lobby powerhouses of the teachers' unions. But who's actually defending the children and trying to do what's right for them? The American Academy of Pediatrics, that tweet, they said, you know what, we don't have any studies that show covering mass of caregivers and young children negatively affects them. I'm like, hey, guess, guess what? You don't have any, any studies showing the opposite's true either. But right. yet you keep saying, let's mask everybody up. And maybe it's not going to cause any problems. Well, historically, for the last several decades, all they've put out is literature talking about how important facial recognition and emotion recognition and all of that is as young children. And now they're walking that back just because it fits the narrative of putting masks on people, despite the fact the World Health Organization says not to do it. I mean, it, it, it's really, it's, it's, it's disgustingly upsetting. And that was the line that jumped out at me. There are no studies to support this concern. I said, okay, well, if, if that were the case, there would be a comma, and you would say, and here are the studies that prove that we're right. Instead, they're just sort of saying, <laughs> well, we, you know, we don't, we don't have a study that shows this concern, but you're just going to have to take our word for it that it's going to be fine. It's like, well, well, no, hang on. You've got to actually prove that, and you've got to say all these other data points and this whole other body of evidence about how facial recognition and, and that sort of interaction is really important for the development of children the, the onus, the burden, should be on you to affirmatively prove with good data that that doesn't apply and it's not a concern here in terms of mask wearing during COVID. They're not even trying. They're just sort of, I think, they're hiding behind their official status, right, their qualifications, and they are simply making an assertion. And I, it's just odd. I don't know what exactly they're motivated by here. <laughs> But it doesn't seem to be good science. There can be some forgiveness in times of crisis. Say, okay, well, you know what? If they have strong data showing us that these young children, these toddlers and their caregivers wearing masks are actually truly lessening transmission and improving outcomes in this specific population, then maybe you can talk about that. But the fact that they still haven't put out one study demonstrating that to be true, that is a problem. Yeah, I mean, so this gets back to the conversation we've been having now on the air 
between the two of us and just more broadly here on the show about mask wearing in schools. I My number one thing is get the schools open. It was a disgrace and incredibly harmful in many, cl- in many places and cases that it didn't happen last year. They have to be open this year. They largely will be. Masks are almost like a secondary issue, but they're not insignificant. And if you're going to be out there telling me that this is not only a good idea and parents ought to put masks on their kids, but it should be required, and anyone who disagrees is in favor of killing children, you better have the receipts and the proof to back that up, and we don't have that. And so it's, again, the reason that I feel like I'm focused so much on it and sort of digging in on the issue a little bit is it feels extremely political and not so much about medicine or science and that bothers me. It really does. Well, I can tell you as a physician, it just by me questioning, listen, you know, at the, I have always said you wear a mask. I don't care what it is. And, you know, especially with the way before the vaccine, like this is our only means to lessen transmission. It's not foolproof, but hey, let's do what we can. But now that we've moved forward, now that we have so much more information, now that we have these vaccines, I do say I don't think that our young children should be masked anymore. Now that I I am convinced by the data that their risk of COVID-19 in the majority of children is much lower than some of the other things that we have accepted as risk. But because me even doing that, I it, it's it's as though I am I am like a snake oil peddling anti-vaxxer it's yes. like, because I'm questioning the lack of data proving the effectiveness. And I'm actually saying there may be some consequences of these young children wearing masks. But by the way, the World Health Organization agrees with me. It's not like I'm just coming up with this on no, my and, own. And it's been happening in the U.K. and other countries where they've had kids in schools, open schools, no masks. They've been fine. Even during Delta, we're not allowed to ask about that. We're not allowed to talk about that. It's very weird. It, it almost feels like a cult or some sort of religion where they just decide something is true and they don't have the burden of evidence to have to prove it. And if you question it, even as an accomplished, acclaimed, doctor like you are then it's like oh persona non grata she's she's wandered away from the cult and we have to get her uh, very briefly 30 seconds doctor all the time we have left what's your response when people say well it looks like the hospitalizations are going up among kids isn't that a counterpoint what do you say I say that the number of children hospitalized have increased because more children are infected with SARS-CoV right now. But thankfully, the hospitalization rate is not going up as well. So we know that it's low risk. I also think it is prudent of the CDC and the hospital systems to make sure those children being reported as COVID hospitalizations are actually because of COVID-19 and not from other viruses like RSV or some other reason for them to be hospitalized. And the SARS-CoV-2 positive test isn't incidental. Dr. Nicole, Dr. Nicole Sapphire, her book is Panic Attack, our colleague at Fox News, a medical doctor telling the truth as she sees it on The Guy Benson Show. Doctor, appreciate it. Have a good weekend. Thanks, guys. We'll step aside. We'll be right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. 
And we were just talking about this with Dr. Sapphire, and I wanted to augment our coverage by playing for you a few sound bites from a press conference yesterday. Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, he was challenged on the school masking policy that he's implemented in Florida, which I think has been misconstrued actually by people on both sides. It is not a ban on masks. Masks are optional with parents making the decision. If you want your kid in a mask in school, they wear them. If you don't, they don't have to wear them. Now, if school districts want to encourage or even require masks, the administration, the DeSantis administration, is actually allowing that to happen as long as parents have an opt-out. And we talked to Dr. McCary earlier in the week. There are lots of kids who need opt-outs for various reasons pertaining to their well-being. So I think DeSantis is sort of playing it up a little bit more as a ban on mandates. It's sort of a ban with an asterisk, with some flexibility, which I think is relatively nuanced and actually quite sensible when you look at the actual policy itself, particularly given the fact that we don't really have any good data that proves that masks on especially young children is a helpful policy at all. So DeSantis gets asked about this by a reporter. I just want you to listen to how he explains it, because I think he's a pretty effective communicator. I know he gets demonized. He's like this gargoyle. He's so awful. He's so terrible. They're not subtle about how much they fear him. And when you listen to him, it might explain why they look at him and see a political threat, which is why so much of this, in my mind, is not about public health or the children. It's about politics. So DeSantis responds To the question, cut 17. We think it's ultimately the parents' decision. We think that this is something that intimately affects the health and well-being of young kids. We had a whole year to watch how this is developed in Florida and throughout the United States and throughout the world. And I can tell you in Florida, we had school districts that mandated it last year, others that didn't. Same with private and, and charter. And there was no statistical difference in terms of the cases. There was a study done uh, by Emily Oster at Brown University, looked at New York, Massachusetts, and Florida. They found no correlation to force masking and differences in cases. Uh, but you also have a situation where a lot of parents have, have come. They've come to me. They've come to their school boards and said, this has been very difficult on their young kids uh, to have to sit there for eight hours uh, with this. It's not natural. It's never been studied what the effects of that are. You know, NIH has a $42 billion budget. They've not spent a single penny since COVID started studying uh, how these mitigations affect uh, kids. So he goes on talking about something that Dr. Fauci said recently and sort of clapping back at that a little bit, cut 18. So ultimately, my view is it's a parent's decision. If you believe in Uh, the masking during the school, you're free to do it. No one's saying you can't do it. Uh, But if you're somebody that is concerned about that, that thinks that that may not be the right thing for your child, then I think you should have the right uh, to make that ultimate decision. And I don't think government should override that. So for me, it's about the parents, and it's about trying to vindicate parents' ability to make these decisions. But I think even, I think yesterday, Anthony Fauci said, we don't know whether it's harmful. We hope not. That, that's where they're at. So they don't really know. So this is a big experiment to have tens of millions of kids, particularly the young kids, that are going to be wearing this all day. The, the airflow, some of the other things with learning, particularly for younger grades when you're learning phonics and some of that other stuff. So there's a whole host of issues. And my view is, is clearly the data, if you look at the data, 
uh, it's totally reasonable for a parent to say, you know what, I'd rather send my kid to school, um, you, you know, without, without wearing the mask. And I've said this. I'd rather have kids in school, in classrooms, perhaps wearing masks, than any sort of virtual disaster like we saw so many places last year. Right? The hill to die on is schools being open in person for learning. Masks are sort of a side piece of it, but it doesn't make it irrelevant or unimportant. Right? And for everyone who is absolutely positively confident that Ron DeSantis is wrong and this is reckless and bad of what he's and this is reckless and bad what he's doing, giving parents choices about masking their young children in schools, a lot of those exact same people thought it was reckless and wrong and horrible for Ron DeSantis to force the schools to be open in Florida last year. And yet that's what he did, and the children of Florida are in a much better place because of it compared to a lot of their brethren, their peers, in other states, especially blue states, where they were locked out of classrooms and fell way behind and had all sorts of problems, including emotional, mental, psychological, developmental. I mean, it was horrible what happened to kids being locked out of classrooms. Florida did the opposite. DeSantis made that tough call last year. He was vilified for it. He's been vindicated, and the same vilifiers are now moving on to the next thing with absolute certainty that they're right again, even though they were dead wrong last year. About another crucial issue, another soundbite from DeSantis at this press conference talking about international case studies and the U.K., which we've been mentioning here on the show, Cut 19. So that's what it's about. It's about parental choice, uh, not government mandate. And I think ultimately parents will be able to exercise the choices that they deem appropriate uh, for their kids. But I would just remind folks, last year, uh, during this time, as we're getting ready for school, you know, you had a lot of howling. People said you shouldn't do it. You shouldn't go to school. Uh, shouldn't have in person. Exactly. As I said, I got sued by the, by the teachers union to close the schools. And we felt very strongly that every parent had the right to send their kid to school in person. We thought it was important for the child's development, that it was important for um, just not just academics, but just being in school and not being sitting at home all day. Uh, and that was, that was the right thing to do. Now we're in a situation where even the most loudest people from last year, they know trying to say that you shouldn't have schools over like that That's like a third rail at this point. And so I think something similar is going to happen. We already know that schools have been run. Some, some schools had no, no students chose to wear masks in different parts of Florida. Um, and the results were not, were not materially different from there. So that's with all that data, United Kingdom doesn't have masks, Sweden doesn't have masks, Iceland, Netherlands, all those. They've been doing this too. You gotta look at that data and look at it. And what that tells me is, this is ultimately a personal choice. Yeah, I mean, this is one, and he was making that exact same point. All the people yelling last year are now yelling about something different this year, but again, he's the bogeyman regardless. You would think that reporters and journalists and, and critical thinkers would be asking a lot of these leaders who are insisting on school masking, just like, oh, this, this has to happen, and anyone who disagrees is just going to lead to mask. Is this going to lead to across-the-board human devastation, suffering, and death among these children. Well, why has that not happened in the U.K. and other countries around the world with open schools without masks? They've been fine, even with the Delta variant in the U.K. That at least should pique someone's curiosity. 
to force some of the public health officials and government apparatchiks and media spokespeople who are out there insisting, well, of course the masks have to happen. And if you don't want that, then you're signing a death warrant for kids or whatever. If that's your position, you have to back it up with data and a lot of it, really strong data, which we don't have. Please explain the UK situation and why that lesson of how they've been thriving over there with schools open, no masks. Why is that example not relevant in the United States? Why is it awful and horrible and unthinkable for Ron DeSantis to say parents should have a choice for their kids on masking based on the UK data? Should that data not count? Does it not matter? If so, why? Explain that. I haven't heard that explanation. I haven't heard it even asked. Right? I haven't heard the media demanding that explanation because I guess the media is just part of this herd mentality. And if you ask a question that might be critical, even if it's based on data and actual real-world experience on a vast scale, you're throwing in your lot with the Ron DeSantis's of the world. God forbid there's nothing worse if you're a journalist to perhaps have someone suspect you might not be a progressive. So the questions don't even get asked. That's what frustrates me, and I'm glad that DeSantis can explain this stuff and communicate, I think, effectively. Maybe you disagree. Maybe his style is not appealing to you or you don't think that he makes good points. I think he makes very good points and really condenses them into some pretty powerful paragraphs, which is why we talk about him so much, because they can't stop talking about it. It's like public enemy number one in the absence of you-know-who we got to step aside. Take a break. It's the Guy Benson Show on a Friday. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him. You love him. You want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The Guy Benson Show. Halfway through the show on this Friday, I'm Guy Benson. Glad to have you along. It's the Guy Benson Show. With me now is Joe Concha, Fox News contributor and political columnist at The Hill. We were on TV together last night on Fox Business, and here we are reunited again on the radio. Joe, good to have you back. I'm coming in next time, you host. I want to be eye-to-eye with Guy, because that, that delay and everything, like I, you need the nonverbal cue. And this it's, way we can have more of a conversation. You agree It's with way better. It's way better in studio. I had one guest in studio last night when I was sitting in for Kennedy, and it was just delightful because you could actually take each other's cues. It's hard. I mean, we've all gotten used to it. It's fine. It works out pretty well remotely. But especially when you're trying to have a conversation, not just between two people, but when there's a panel, there's four voices, trying to corral all of that when people are in different cities and there are slightly different delays. It's tricky, but we made it work, and it's always fun to be in uh, for the great lady, Kennedy, who is wrapping up a beautiful vacation. She posted on her Instagram a photo of a villa that she was at in this pool in Italy, and it looks amazing. And my jealousy is off the charts. So let's move on before I just start or to dwell. The Italian Riviera, the uh, like Sorrento, all the Amalfi, that, that that sort of area. I don't precisely know how much I'm at liberty to say, but uh, okay. I will say she is in Italy and having a fabulous time. And the envy 
is growing the longer we talk about it. So let's instead talk <laughs> about another subject. Yeah, so, so, Joe, before we get to CNN and the Cuomos, and we were talking about that last night, I just saw this on Twitter yesterday, and I think it's a very interesting point. So the county in Massachusetts where Martha's Vineyard is located, over the last 14 days, they have had an increase in cases, confirmed cases of coronavirus. It's plus 1,829%. Now, it's still a very small number of cases. The positivity rate is low and very manageable. But just in terms of raw cases as a percentage, it's gone up by 1,800% over the last two weeks. Now, we have no idea if there's any connection with that number and Barack Obama's big 60th birthday party that got so much attention that they were supposedly scaling back. It did not look scaled back at all to me. My position on the air was, I don't care if he's having a great party. He's more than welcome to have a great party. They're probably all or mostly vaccinated. People can sort of make their choices and live their life. And I sort of joke that all parties and events that I will attend from now on will be personally for me in honor of Barack Obama, which makes them scientifically safe, of course. But from a media standpoint, Getting rid of any of the contacts that I just mentioned, setting aside the the positivity rate or whatever, the fact that in Martha's Vineyard there's been an 1,800% increase in new cases around the time of Barack Obama's birthday party, whether that can be linked directly or not, if that man had an R next to his name as opposed to a D, I feel like this would be a massive news story, and people would be calling it, regardless of the truth, a super spreader event, an anti-science affront, and an outrage of the highest order. And yet, I feel like that news cycle just came and went, and everything's fine because they like the Obamas. It's a good feeling you have there, as far as how this would be covered. It's completely accurate. Because let's play this game, right? Close your eyes, and you think of Ron DeSantis, and he's throwing his 45th birthday party on Marco Island in Florida, yep. kind of like the Martha's Vineyard of Florida, right? Yep. And he invites 600 people down, mostly people that you would kind of see at CPAC, not so much celebrities. And then <laughs> the case rate went up 1,829%. Uh, you would need to add, we, we talk about being in cable news, it's 24-7. You'd have to make it like 25-8, like somehow expand the day and the days of the week just to fit in not just the coverage but the piousness the cnn snarky chiron guy getting in there and saying you know desantis super spreader event could kill potentially thousands you know and then they do some sort of math around the multiplication of the delta virus or something like that so yeah that, that that's the way this exactly and it wouldn't covered. matter right it wouldn't matter if any of the cases had been actually traced to desantis's party it wouldn't matter if the positivity rate and the trends overall in the county were fine they would find the most hysterical data point right that could gin up the most outrage and they would put that on blast and they would make him into a monster and even if they couldn't actually directly link it with evidence they would talk endlessly about the optics and how it looks and the you know 1800% increase da, 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 and it would be a massive event 
news wise. We saw this already, right? We, we saw it last May, May of 2020, when DeSantis opened the beaches, right? Outdoors, it's warm, you know, probably not terribly unsafe. And then they put the guy on who dressed up as the Grim Reaper, like literally yes. did interviews with him, right? So, yeah, we know exactly how this would go. The lawyer, the, he's a lawyer, the, the guy who dressed up as the Grim Reaper, who had the science exactly wrong, being outdoors at the beach is basically the safest place you can be during right. COVID, but he was out there trolling beachgoers like they were going to get people killed. And then he sort of hung up his costume and went to some Black Lives Matter rallies a few months later in big crowds and then put the costume back on to shame other people for events that they were attending. And it's just sort of like you can just decide what is good and what's acceptable based on your politics. And the virus, I guess, magically aligns with progressive politics. And you're in the clear. That's the lesson that a lot of Americans gleaned last summer. And then these experts look around and the media look around and say, why do some people not trust us? Why is it so hard to get people on the same page? Maybe because they've been paying some attention for the last year and a half, and you've demonstrated that you can't be trusted to some extent or in some cases to a large extent. And, Guy, it's in broad daylight, right? So you watch the Sunday talk shows last Sunday, and you go to Meet the Press and Chuck Todd, who will never be confused with Tim Russert, and he has Dr. Anthony Fauci on. And the one event he brings up is the Sturgis Biker Rally, not Obama Fest. If he was actually truly fair, and we talked about this, I think, the last time I was on the radio with you, as far as, like, Chuck Todd claiming that there is no liberal bias. Right, well, no there bias. it is right there, because you focused in on Sturgis, and you didn't even bring up Obama. If he brings up both and says, hey, Dr. Fauci, what's wrong with this event, what's wrong with that event, I'd say, okay, that's a good question. That's fair. Only brings up Sturgis. As that, that was the only super spur well, going on. That's those people. right? That's those people who are bad. And there's these people who are good. I mean, it's, it's not terribly subtle. Another example of this kind of double standard that I think drives people crazy comes out of Chicago. And it's a horrible story. 29-year-old female police officer murdered in cold blood last weekend. She, it was a traffic stop. She was shot dead. She had just gotten off of maternity leave. She has a two-month-old infant at home. It's just God. terrible. And she passed away. Her, her partner was uh, severely wounded. When the mayor came to visit the partner in the hospital, the police turned their back on the mayor because they're very upset with the way the mayor's leading the city. And one of the edicts, apparently, from the city, the decision was made, I guess there's a tradition in Chicago in the horrible event of a police officer being killed in the line of duty, they have bagpipes that play. And the city said, you can't do the bagpipes under these circumstances because of COVID. And instantly, anyone with half a brain said, we just had Lollapalooza here in Chicago, where there were tens of thousands of people packed together. The city health officials have made announcements saying they've looked at all the data. It's been two weeks. It was not a super spreader. There were a tiny fraction of cases. That's it. So you have a huge music festival. They had market days for the LGBT community last weekend. They're having all this stuff happening in the city of Chicago. But bagpipes for the murdered cop can't happen because covid And I think some people look at this and say, it's all crazy, it's all crap, and sometimes that lack of trust and that frustration and that mistrust can manifest in in ways that are unfortunate. Like, I think people are too hesitant in some cases to go get vaccinated. I wish that they wouldn't make their decisions the way that they are, but I can at least empathize and understand how the seeds of this mistrust have been planted on this issue for a long time now. 
and I'll throw some names out of you. Gavin Newsom, French Laundry, Nancy Pelosi, Hair Salon, Lori Lightfoot, Hair Salon, all while they're closed, right? All while you're not supposed to have indoor dining. And oh, I Muriel Bowser, right? Uh, here in D.C., a Bowser, a wedding. The, literally the day that her new mandate was put in place for no good reason. We ran through all the stats yesterday. The next day she violated it. The cause is bigger than the virus. That's what we heard all last summer. That well, This is different. You should be able to protest here because the cause is bigger than the virus. No, you don't get to pick and choose based on narrative. And, you know, I'm glad that Lori Lightfoot got her back turned on because from a media perspective, she is turning her back on white reporters, Asian reporters, Hispanic reporters in Chicago. Remember, she keeps declaring that, you know, I'm only going to give certain interviews to uh, reporters of color. Well, what does that say to the Asian guy covering you or the Hispanic guy covering you no, or the white guy for that matter? It's all based on color your skin and not the content of your work. And that, that's just amazing that she actually said that part out loud. But there she is, and she'll probably get reelected as long as she'd like to be mayor of that town. It's amazing. Now, going back to your example that you gave, the hypothetical Ron DeSantis birthday party fake super spreader that would be hyped into one of the worst and most irresponsible things ever done by a public official in the history of the world. I think that they might might have Chris Cuomo come back from vacation for special coverage on CNN in the 9 p.m. hour on that network. He's been on vacation. It's been a tough time, obviously, for his family. His brother is resigning the governorship. His name came up repeatedly in the attorney general report because he was actively sort of strategizing with his brother on PR, on damage control for the Me Too allegations. He's implicated in the nursing home and COVID stuff, at least in that he got special treatment, Chris Cuomo, uh, from his brother in terms of testing and state resources. We talked about this a little bit on the show last night on TV, Joe. I'm trying to figure out how this is going to be a sustainable, tenable situation for him to be on the air in the future at CNN, doing his shtick, which is wagging his finger and speaking truth to power, as he says, for you know hypocrisy, and he loves to go after Republicans in particular, abuse of office, so on and so forth. We're just telling the truth. There's just a ready-made comeback for any guest in the future, which is this entire episode, which he's not allowed to talk about on the air, according to these rules that they're making on the fly. It just seems like a, a very odd situation that's going to probably play out in perpetuity if he remains in that time slot. His whole shtick, and we did talk about this a little bit last night, is being patently pious, right? As you said, he lectures people on what you should and should be doing. He has he is morally better than you, even the viewer. And you're right. Any Republican that goes on there, they could hit Cuomo back with XYZ. But he lies on the air, and I guess he figures that maybe his audience doesn't know about. For instance, he was challenged on breaking his own quarantine, right? And he said, well, I was at my home. Well, yeah, that's technically true. The problem is it was a half hour from the home that he was living in. This one was under construction. Like yeah, you his other home. Toilet kind of thing, right? So, and even seeing PR backed it up. He was at his home. Well, no, he wasn't at his home. That's not where he lives. And then another time he said, well, somebody was accosting my wife and I was defending her. It's like he'll have an answer for everything because he's just like his brother. And look, the bottom line is you see now what the Cuomos are made of. Mario Cuomo was a great governor and he could have been president of the United States, an old school Democrat, Kennedy Democrat. But then you see Andrew and Chris really just 
got to where they are because of their name and not because they actually have any talent. So I don't know how you put him back on the air, but I said the same thing about Jeffrey Tubin, and he got a happy ending, didn't get the shaft. So what does that say? I think if you are friends with the right people in the network, like Jeff Sucker, then you're not going to go anywhere. And I guess they figure, uh, all right, we'll just go ahead with it because they have no bench. So I guess they figure they can't do any better if they put somebody else in their spot, but they should save the face here in some way, shape, or form, suspend him, do something to show that you care, but they won't because they figure that'll be a victory for the right. They don't want to give in to the right, to Fox News, to people like us that are criticizing him, instead of just doing the right thing, which any other network would have done, which is fire the guy and <laughs> don't look back. Here's the thing, though. If they sanction him in some way, and again, you know, I'm not a big cancel culture person. I'm not out here saying he needs to be fired, although, I mean, based on their standards, oh, yeah. even his standards, right, he's a very indignant person on this stuff. I mean, and journalistic ethics. I mean, there have been some pretty flagrant violations. And he said, oh, look, I get it. I was advising my brother. It was inappropriate. It won't happen again. And the Washington Post reported it was still happening just recently. So that would be another lie on top of the other lies. I mean, at some point, you'd say there should be consequences. But to your point, Joe, if they sanction him with a, let's say, a suspension, I don't know how they do that because it seems like everything he has done basically has been blessed by leadership there. So they would be scapegoating him and punishing him for kind of just abiding by their standards or lack thereof. That's true, right? Because they're the ones who allowed, they being CNN management, allowed him to interview Andrew Cuomo 11 times last year and not bring up the nursing home. You can't even call them interviews. It was PR. It was propaganda. It was to get the governor a book deal, $5 million book deal. It was to get him an Emmy. All those things helped in that regard. So, yeah, they allowed it. And then... (laughs) They're so audacious, CNN. I, I can't believe the, the way they go about things. And they say, well, of course Chris can't cover his brother. That would be a conflict of interest they say this year when things went south. So, yeah, this is their own rules. They would, they would almost have to suspend themselves because Chris could just say, hey, I was just going by, I was going by what I was told, right? So you're right. It's not really his fault per se. I mean, it is. You shouldn't be advising your brother on how to smear accusers of sexual harassment. That's, that's kind of a big no-no, particularly when you're the big Me Too guy who declared Brett Kavanaugh guilty before proven innocent. But at the same time, you're right. This is more on CNN management than anything else. But Jeff Sucker, he's out in like three or four months anyway. But per his own words, he's probably going to be gone by the end of the year and wants to try something else. So, yeah, who, I guess AT&T would actually literally have to get involved. And they're the parent company guy of CNN. They would have to step in and say, guys, you are making us look very bad. And your numbers, <laughs> have you seen the ratings for CNN? Don Lemon gets like 400 and something thousand viewers in, in, in his second hour of his show, while like Gutfeld gets like four times that. Uh, it's, it's, so it's not like these guys are performing or ma- making you a lot of money. The, the numbers at CNN, they're down 80% since the beginning of the year. And it's not like it's been a slow news cycle, guy, right? Joe Concha, we got to leave it there for now. Fox News contributor, columnist at The Hill. Have a great Friday. Have a great weekend. You too, sir. Stepping aside, coming right back on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Dominich, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Dominich Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Back on The Guy Benson Show. So there's been a discussion, part of which we had earlier with Dr. Sapphire, about the current level of danger from COVID to children. And the great news is it remains extremely, extremely, extremely low. Even with Delta, the hospitalization rate among children with Delta is actually down compared to previous variants. In real numbers, like raw numbers, it's up because there are more cases. We're in a wave. But the rate of hospitalization among children is down. And in some areas, flat. We also know that COVID, in terms of hospitalizations, is about the same as the flu 
for children, which is to say very rare cases, kids are hospitalized with the flu and with COVID at approximately the same rate, with the flu being more deadly than COVID for children. This is what the data has shown us. But people are all whipped up into a frenzy, and the press is contributing to it. Listen to this correction from the Texas Tribune. They did an article about pediatric hospitalizations from COVID. Here's the correction. An earlier version of this story overstated the number of children who have been hospitalized in Texas recently with COVID-19. The story said over 5,800 children had been hospitalized during a seven-day period in August, according to CDC. That number correctly referred to children hospitalized with COVID-19 since the pandemic began. In actuality, 783 children were admitted to Texas hospitals. So they did 5,800, which was the entire pandemic number. They misidentified that as a one-week total. And then in that correction, as Mary Catherine Ham points out on Twitter, they used a month-long total rather than a week-long total still to sort of inflate the sense of the risk. Let's try to assess risk accurately using facts and make decisions and policies from that point and make decisions and policies accordingly. There has to be rationality and accuracy, and the media needs to be helping, not harming, and not fueling the hysteria, which in far too many cases they are. We train... We try not to do that here on The Guy Benson Show. Final hour here on the program on this Friday. It's coming up. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on a Friday. Happy Friday to you. Back in Washington, D.C., I'm Guy Benson. Glad to have you along. GuyBensonShow.com for all of your program needs, including the free podcast every day, including weekends, bonus Benson. It's always free on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, and wherever else you might get your podcasts. And the happy hour, as always, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. I'm awaiting my new shipment, as a matter of fact, of the long drink. It is a citrus soda, very refreshing, with a premium liquor kick. It's so good. The most popular alcoholic beverage in Finland for like 70 years running. For good reason. It's here in America. It's growing in popularity. And many of you have tried it, and you've told me about it. TheLongDrink.com, their website. TheLongDrink.com. You can see where it's sold near you. They're expanding. You can also order online, which is what we do. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only, please. As we begin this final hour of the broadcast week, let's bring in our final guest. Michael Gunzelman, also known as Guns, is on Fox News Headlines. He also has his own music-slash-sports show, which is an interesting combination, The Guns Show. He's recently had on The Killers, the band, and Joe Theismann. Heard of him. Guns, it's great to have you here. 
Guy, what's going on? The best hour of the week. It's a happy hour, my man. Let's go. <laughs> happy hour on a Friday. We love it. So you and I spent some time together most recently at our mutual friend Cat Timp's wedding, which you DJed. How did that come to be? Because you were there, and I knew that you guys were buddies, and you'd been on panels and stuff together. You're like, oh, yeah, I'm the DJ. Right. Yeah. So um, I've been uh, kind of like involved in music now for, I don't know, almost like a decade. Used to play in bands and stuff and then just started interviewing a bunch of bands. And that kind of led to me um, DJing various places like Webster Hall and Irving Plaza uh, multiple times, actually. And Kat would come out to these because she likes the same type of music I do. And one thing led to another and she was like, why don't we just have guns DJ our wedding? And I was like, sure, why not? So we kind of... uh, (laughs) <laughs> we kind of just uh, winged it a little bit, if you would, but it was definitely a lot of fun. Um, the thing with Kat is, and yeah, she's like one of my best friends for sure, and obviously she's a lot of fun. But when I went and uh, this is what all DJs and anyone who's thinking about getting wedding, you have to do this. When you speak with your DJ, the most important thing isn't to tell them what songs you do want to hear. It's to tell them what songs you don't want to hear. So when I asked Mm. Kat, I was like, what don't you want me to play? And, of course, she had a huge list of everything from, like, country music. And I was like, well, what about Journey? And she's like, absolutely not. I was like, okay, we're not playing Don't Stop Leaving. I was like, what about, like, you know, sing-alongs, Bon Jovi, Springsteen? She said, absolutely not. I was like, all right, Kat, you're making this a little difficult. (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, just esoteric musical taste. Although I... I kind of feel like Journey ended up getting played anyway, if I recall correctly. Because I, I feel you like know, under federal yeah. under federal law, Don't Stop <laughs> Believing must be played at every white person's wedding. Uh, that is that in shout. I think towards the end of the night, I was just <laughs> like, you know what? The heck with this. Uh, you know, enough drinks have been poured that I think people would appreciate this. But, you know, we're dealing with Kat here who literally her, her wedding song was The Misfits. And so, you know, that sums up everything that we... <laughs> that I had to do with that night. But it was definitely a lot of fun. I mean, what a, what a great time altogether. And, uh, yeah, it was great to see you. We had, we had an absolute blast. Great time. <laughs> then I also learned that not only are you friends with Kat, and, of course, that translated into DJing her wedding, when we were booking you for the show today, I learned from producer Christine that you, in fact, have worked alongside producer Christine in the past, and you have lived to tell the tale. <laughs> yes, she is. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it was a different radio station. We were working for uh, the great one, Mark Levin. And um, I remember, I think I was probably still in college at the time, and I was like starting on the weekends, like as an intern, and then would kind of fill in during the week. And she was there, and she, I, I, I remember just like gravitating towards her because she was, she was like making fun of everybody else, and I was like, that's the type of person that I can get along with. Those that make fun of other people. So I mean, she was. <laughs> She was great, and uh, you know, and now now you're with her. So congratulations! Now she's your yeah, she's your, uh, she's your thing. But uh, yeah, no, yeah, we've no, had she an sure is. Blast, yeah. Was that at WABC <laughs> in New York? Yeah, yeah. So I started oh, yeah. working with uh, Curtis Sliwa, uh, of sure. course, obviously uh, going up against uh, DeBlo- yeah, you know, well, not DeBlo- but running for mayor. Absolutely, and we're, we're, we're pulling for him for sure because New York City is an absolute cesspool right now, so we need Curtis in there. And then I started working from, um, after Curtis and Kubi, I started working for uh, Hannity, Sean Hannity, and then eventually Mark Levin. 
And uh, that led to working with IMIS and being an on-air personality on the IMIS in the morning show and all sorts of great stuff. But, uh, yeah, Christine was like one of my first friends over there because she just, uh, you know, we, she, she was a troublemaker. And that's, you know, that's uh, – I, I Yeah, not was. And it's not a past tense thing. <laughs> Uh, so one of the reasons that we thought to book you was you do a lot of stuff on the entertainment side. And so, of course, the world is discussing the development yesterday about Britney Spears and the hashtag Free Britney movement with her father, Jamie, announcing that he's going to step aside as the conservator in this strange arrangement that has been in place now for over well over a decade. Walk us through this like. She is not now freed, right? Britney Spears is not out of the conservatorship. It's just a transition away from her dad to someone else. Obviously, this is major movement. I feel like a lot of it was probably spurred by public opinion because she's been upset for a long time, but there just wasn't a focus on it. There's been a huge amount of attention given to this now, which I think probably led to and triggered this move by her dad, sort of as a PR move. I'm just trying to figure out what actually changes or is this just one step down the path towards her getting control or some semblance of control of her life back intact well i mean guy you you summed it up perfectly and um, i kind of say it like this it's the internet remains undefeated no matter how hard people try to push back against social media or perhaps changes whatever it might be the internet's always going to win. And that's exactly what happened here with this free Britney movement. You know, at first it was almost like a, uh, you know, like a fringe conspiracy type thing. And then more and more people became educated through the internet, through social media on it. And that really led to this, you know, monumental change in Britney's conservatorship. Now you are also right in the fact that it's not like yesterday. I I was like, free Britney. Like we did it. Congratulations. Victory. You know, like we're all like, yes, we did it. Um, just because her dad is is a creep, and, and you know, the, the more we learned about what he did and uh, how much he restricted her, you know, many people felt bad for her. And um, the, the thing is, it's not a complete victory right now. It's just the fact that he agreed that he would eventually. I think people have to realize that he said he would eventually step aside as her conservator. So it's not like it happened yesterday. As soon as the headlines came out, of course, social media is like, yes, and it is a, it is a big um, change. It's just not going to happen in the immediate future. The next step um, that's going to happen is Brittany's either going to have to petition again for the conservator that she wants, or the judge is going to have to say that she and her father are going to have to agree on who their conservator should be. So there's definitely going to be more of a battle going on here. And then also on top of that, the dad's going to want to get paid. Jamie Spears is already saying that Britney uh, uh, owes him for all the legal filings. It's in the millions of dollars. So now it's going to turn to fighting over the money aspect. But it is, uh, you know, it's, it's better than it was a month ago. The fact yeah, that, I feel like you know, the, the money yeah. stuff is what has bothered me all along. And yeah, the amount of control, like sometimes people do need help. Sometimes there's a reason for a conservatorship, but the amount of abuse, financial and otherwise here, just was, I think, very creepy to a lot of people. Guns, briefly yeah. before you go, you're also a big sports guy, which is why you have the music and sports show. You're a diehard Yankee fan. I'm a Yankee fan. I thought it was a oh. cool spectacle last night in the cornfields of Iowa, a very thrilling game, but yet another disaster for the Yankees' bullpen. The outcome is uh, sadly not surprising, Terrible. but very disappointing. <laughs> but still, a very 
cool showcase for the game of baseball. I'm glad it happened. I wish the bottom of the ninth hadn't happened. Listen, it was great. Uh, Fox just came out with the ratings earlier today. They said it was one of the most watched games uh, since 2005. Uh, so it definitely did its purpose there, served its purpose there. But, Guy, personally, as a Yankee fan, I, uh, y- I'm ready to take my Field of Dreams DVD and burn it in the middle of Second Avenue right now. I am <laughs> over this thing. I hate the whole concept of it. I hate Iowa. I hate corn. I'm over wow. corn. I never want to see corn again in my life. I am so mad. This thing ruined my childhood. My dad and me playing catch and Field of Dreams. You know, what a great moment. No. The Yankees blowing this game in the bottom of the ninth inning. I hate everything. I'm so mad at this team right now, and it's ruined. It ruined my childhood. Field of dreams done. Kevin it's like you Costner, want to take a the worst. You're going to take a blowtorch to the actual cornfields, which don't take this yes. out on Iowa. This is not Iowa's fault. This is the Yankees bullpen fault, and the Yankees bullpen yes. is at fault for a lot of things recently. Unfortunately, Mike Gunzelman. <laughs> A.K.A. Guns. Great having you here on the show. Appreciate it. Let's talk soon. Absolutely. I'm going to have some of those long drinks. All right, my man? We'll have some fun. Go for it. Have a good weekend. <laughs> the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show continues right after this. Guy Benson will be right back. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Happy Friday. Glad you are here. So I got in just under the wire. Back to D.C. from New York, where I was filling in for Kennedy the last couple nights. I'll be in for her again next week on Thursday. Got Gutfeld coming up next week, so back to the Big Apple soon. But I'm home. It was a bit of a close shave, though. Like, all right, show's starting. Let's go here. And I took the train back. There were a few minor delays. It wasn't too bad. But something that happened on the train, and I tweeted about this, I don't even fully know why I'm as bothered by it as I am. Nevertheless, it really grated on me. So I boarded the train this morning in New York, and the conductor comes on and gives the announcement. And they always do the same spiel, right, about, you know, this is the train, these are our stops, here's the drill. And then recently they've been talking about the mask requirement. Okay, Fine. They, they do that on airplanes, too. I'm just sort of used to it. For whatever reason, today, this guy was absolutely fanatical about the mask announcement. It's like it was the first thing he would say. He repeated it throughout the ride. It felt like every half hour or so, he would announce this thing. Where he said, it's a federal mandate, and you have to comply. He kept talking about how there was like in the force of law, you will comply. I'm paraphrasing. The other thing that he also really focused on was the only exception to wearing your mask is when you're eating and drinking, which we know that's all you have to say. When you're actively eating and drinking, you can take the mask away, but that's it. But no, he got into very specific lecturing, almost hectoring detail. He was saying... You can take your mask aside while you're actively eating or drinking, and here's what that does and does not mean. And he got very specific. 
about it. Basically, if you are not literally in the process of sipping, and I mean the word literally, literally, if you are not sipping a beverage, swallowing the liquid, or chewing on the food, you need to have a mask on. And the idea is, I guess, between bites, you have to put your mask back on. If you're sitting there with a half a sandwich in one hand and a soda in the other, but you are not at that exact moment ingesting something, your mask better be on. And he said every single time, if you're caught, even in this situation, he said you will be escorted off the train. Like they're going to come frog march you off the train. And he also warned or threatened that you can be banned for life from Amtrak. It just seems like a bit much to me. And maybe part of it is the fact that Of course, this requirement is completely irrespective of vaccination, right? You could could have done the thing that they told you to do, which is get vaccinated, which I have done. You all know that. I've said it a gazillion times at this point. I'm a fully vaccinated person. I did it not just because I was told to, it's because I wanted to for a whole bunch of reasons that we've talked about on this show for many months. I got my vaccine shots As soon as they were available to me, as soon as I was eligible, I didn't try to manipulate things or skip the line or anything like that. But the second I was eligible, I signed up and went and I got my shot. Then I got the following shot a month later. And as regular listeners know, a couple weeks ago, I got a breakthrough case. Right. So I had Moderna one, Moderna two and a breakthrough case. And the breakthrough case Thanks to the vaccine, and we know this is statistically true, vaccinated people who still get an infection of COVID have a much less severe case, a much more mild set of symptoms, a shorter duration on average of an infection, and indeed, new study out of the UK, are less transmissible, contra something that the CDC recently said. The point is, I've had all the things. I've had not one, but two COVID shots and COVID. And that recovery from the recent breakthrough case means that my body is just like overflowing with antibodies at this point. I have all the antibodies. When I told the story about my breakthrough case, I mentioned that once I started having very mild symptoms, which is all I ever had, right? A loss of taste and smell that came a little bit later for a day or two. The initial symptoms were a runny nose and a tickle in my throat and a bit of a cough. That's it. It was never worse than that. But because I had some of these symptoms and I was traveling and I started to get a little bit concerned about what the symptoms might be just because I didn't want to accidentally expose someone to COVID, I started wearing a mask voluntarily around other people until I got a rapid test and I tested positive, then I isolated. So I literally have done Everything the right way. I've tried to be conscientious. I've followed medical guidance. I've tried to be an informed, responsible adult. And here, with all the antibodies swimming through my body, I have this employee at Amtrak repeatedly, I would say, like, honestly, six or eight times over the course of this train ride, threatening basically anyone on the train if they come through and you're not actively chewing on that beef jerky or whatever it might be you might get thrown off this train and you'll never be allowed back on 
in my tweet about this, obviously I was feeling a little bit salty. I was like, hey, maybe the conductors can come through and do some spot checks, some mouth checks to make sure that we're really chewing, right? Real food as opposed to just going through the motions to get away with it because we're, we're rebels. Nick really is like, sir, I, I need to see your, uh, your mouth. Open your mouth. Are you really eating? It was just obnoxious. I understand we're all trying to get through this together. There are certain rules. I'm usually pretty easygoing about such things. But just the, the tone of this, the frequency, treating us like we're children, it just something in me broke. So I dashed off a nasty tweet, and then I complained about it on the radio. Therapy for me, over. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com We are back on the Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour, but there is some unhappy news in the news cycle right now. Afghanistan just going down the tubes. The Taliban overrunning that country as the U.S. pulls out. Earlier in the program today, General Jack Keane was our guest. He reflected on what we are watching unfold before our very eyes in real time. Here's part of my conversation with General Jack Keane. Let's begin with sort of a skeptical question from people or from the vantage point of people who are saying, look, this is very sad to see. Uh, it's embarrassing for the country. It's going to be horrible for people in Afghanistan, especially you know women and children. We're already hearing terrible stories about what's going to happen to young girls. But the fact that the U.S. is now getting out, it was a long time coming. And Biden just talked about you know all the troops and all the equipment and all the training that they have to stand up on their own and they're just melting in the face of the Taliban, and it looks like it could be a rout in, in very short order. Is that not proof that this whole project was never really going to work, and shouldn't we just cut our losses? What's your response when someone says something or, or offers that perspective? Yeah, well, certainly reasonable people um, can be on both sides of this issue in, in terms of, one, just getting out of Afghanistan completely after 20 years or the other. Where I am, uh, what, what, what I see is we had a fairly stable situation, not a perfect situation, but a fairly stable situation in the stalemate that existed in Afghanistan. And by that I mean is the Afghan security forces uh, with U.S. air power and the robust intelligence that uh, we helped provide them was, was certainly not strong enough to defeat the Taliban. Uh, nor was the Taliban uh, capable of taking over Afghanistan. And, and, and that sort of status quo has existed for a number of years. Um, and what that, what that provided us is the, the, the continued reason why we have forces in Afghanistan is to make certain that Afghanistan itself uh, is not taken over by the Taliban and becomes an epicenter for international terrorism and particularly the rise again of the of Al Qaeda, and it's for most of us who have some working uh, knowledge of of Afghanistan uh, know full well that if the Taliban take over, it's indisputable that uh, international terrorism would would, would return, and and that. And that, I think, is unacceptable to the security of the American people. So the argument is, 
if the Taliban takes over Afghanistan, and at this point it doesn't really seem like an if, does it? I mean, it's, it's like when the Taliban takes over, you're going to have all these atrocities, they're executing members of the government, it's going to get worse. Anyone suspected of helping the Americans at any point from the last 20 years, they're going to get executed probably, you know, on TV and, you know, in public. They're uh, kidnapping young girls and forcing them into child bride situations for these Taliban fighters. I mean, it's going to be a catastrophe in Afghanistan. There's no question about that, a humanitarian disaster uh, and really terrible to watch. And you might have people, again, sort of like a cold-eyed view of this saying that's horrible we're very sorry that it's happening but that's not necessarily a reflection of american interest and you're saying that the american interest in preventing this is not just the humanitarian stuff but if the taliban if and when the taliban takes over will be back to sort of the pre-9-11 scenario where a terrorist organization is running a whole country and allowing other terrorist organizations to come and train and thrive and grow and develop you know uh plans to then attack Westerners and foreigners and, in fact, inside the United States, which is exactly what happened leading up to 9-11, then on 9-11. It's just sort of like the cycle reboots itself, right? That's the concern. Yeah. No, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> that, that obviously, yes, yes, is the case. And, and the United States military and our intelligence service uh, totally advised uh, – that President Biden of, of of these harsh realities, and that that is why they were supporting keeping this modest force there. Um, President Biden chooses, as did uh, President Trump, used the term the end, endless wars. Um, but the fact is, is that we are fighting what most people accept as a general principle of a multi generational war dealing with radical Islam. And we've been at it for 20 years, since 9-11. I think one of the things that, he, that has happened is our how to deal with this war. We have learned quite a bit through the years, and, and how we approach it has evolved quite a bit. And I think it's, it, it, it's pretty sobering and somewhat sophisticated uh, where we are now. My full interview with General Jack Keane available on the website, GuyBensonShow.com. The free podcast available every day, seven days a week, round the clock, on demand, no charge, totally free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, and wherever you get your free podcast. When we come back, a farewell here at the Guy Benson Show. Not from the show itself, not from me, but one of our beloved teammates is moving on in their career. We'll tell you the details right after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Friday on the Guy Benson Show. And yesterday during the home stretch, we said Derce to our friend and colleague, Quiet Wyatt, who's off to Italy on his first ever international vacation. Very exciting. He's taking off shortly. But we teased during that segment that we had another goodbye to get to today. When we launched Benson and Harf, so my co-host, Marie Harf, and I, that was the predecessor show to this one in a different time slot. That was back in May of 2018. So it's been a minute. It's been, what, almost three and a half years. When that show launched, we had a new technical producer, Board Op, 
in his mid-twenties, had never been assigned to a show before, that got placed with Benson and Harf. And for longtime listeners, and even recent listeners, you know him, Max. Max was our board op. He learned as we learned, and he has become an integral part of the guy show. And he's become a friend, a valued colleague. It's really hard to imagine this show without him running the board, as he's done virtually every day. I mean, he's, of course, taken a few trips and vacations here or there. But he's just been a faithful, upbeat, reliable, fantastic, talented member of this team for three and a half years. And I have such mixed feelings about this because I hate to lose him. He's leaving the program. It's his last show running the board today because he's off to the siren song and allure of the bright lights of television. He'll be producing still within the Fox family. He's going over to Fox News primetime, the 7 p.m. Eastern hour. And it's a very exciting opportunity for him. It's an opportunity for him to grow his career and try some new things. And I'm just thrilled for him, but also sad for the show. Because we'll replace him and we're going to make a new addition to the team. We'll hire someone and they'll do a great job and you'll get to know them. And we don't know who that person is just yet. And the show's going to be great. But we're going to miss Max a lot. And Max, just briefly tell us about the opportunity. I know you start on Monday, which has to be very exciting, because you've always been pretty open about your desire eventually to move over to the TV side. The chance presented itself, and you're grabbing it. And even though I wish you weren't for my own selfish reasons, I'm glad for you that you are. Yeah, thank you, Guy, and thank you for the kind words. I mean, I'm getting a little choked up over here. Yeah, me too. (laughs) But I'll be moving to TV, like you said. I'll be booking for Fox News primetime, which hopefully will lead into future producing. Maybe I'll turn into Christine eventually. Um, Oh, no. (laughs) For better or for worse. Aspiration. (laughs) Shoot for the stars, Maxie. But, yeah, this has always been an aspiration of mine. I've been at Fox for geez, like six years now, pretty much right out of college in 2015 up until now. TV was always a goal of mine, and I knew if I worked hard and did my time in radio, this could be a possibility, and now it is. Yeah, It's kind of sad that it happened, not abruptly, um, in the past week or two, but uh, it, it's just weird that this is the last show that I'm on, being in yeah, radio I mean- for, for all this time. And we've just been a pretty tight-knit, close team now, especially with Christine for three and a half years. Wyatt joined us along the way, and Wyatt actually is in the United Club at Newark Airport getting ready to fly to Italy, but he didn't want to leave the continent before he could bid his official farewell, Max, on the air. Wyatt, do you have a message for our friend, Max? Yes, I'm. I'm staring right now out of the out of the, the terminal at Midtown Manhattan, looking and waving bye to Max right now. But I just want to say it's been a pleasure working with Max. He's been an amazing asset to our team and just a wonderful person to work with. And uh, I'm gonna miss him, but but he's gonna do great things on TV. Yeah, he, our loss will definitely be their gain. And producer Christine. You frequently refer to Max as Maxie. You will call him 
Maxi, like down the hall when you're in the office, which I'm sure he will miss so dearly hearing your voice yelling his name. But <laughs> joking aside, uh, you guys have worked so closely together day in and day out for years, really getting this show off the ground. And I know that you have some things that you want to say. I, oh God, I didn't think I was going to get choked up and now I feel it coming, but okay. Max and I, I truly feel like we're war buddies. We really started, especially Benjamin Hart from the ground up. And it was such a journey. There were days where Max and I, before the days of transcription, where we would sit side by side for hours, just transcribing word for word, audio clips and him and I just, you know, you're in a studio with that person, your engineer and your producers, you know, hours a day together. And he truly has grown so much. He is one of the best engineers I know. He is so, so talented. And I'm so lucky because not only is he a coworker, and I know I joke around a lot about this, but he is one of my best friends. And I'm going to miss him a lot. I, mean, I, don't, I mean, yeah, no. Oh, Christine, I mean, we, we all are going to miss him. And I think his growth is a huge thing in my mind because he started sort of pretty green. He hadn't been in this exact type of role before. He was, you know, very young in his mid-20s. And to think now where he's this indispensable part of the show where just hyper-reliable, you know that everything's going to get done the way it needs to get done every single day, no problems, no questions asked, just a well-oiled machine. You know, I'm running all over the place, and I've got a lot of responsibilities. Christine, you know, you are uh, unique uh, in, in sort of <laughs> the way that you operate. Thank you. And Max is just there quietly getting the job done every single day. No, and it's, 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 it's true. You know, the show is going to be great. We're going to keep growing. We have a fabulous audience. You're not going anywhere, Christine. You keep, you keep reminding me of that, almost taunting me. Uh-huh. Like I can, <laughs> you're, you're like you me. can never get rid of me. Uh, but we <laughs> are unfortunately, for our sake, losing Max again. It's a, a tribute and a credit to TV, and he's heading over to that side at Fox. I said that he would quietly do his job, but I do have to point out, not always. He was not always. A shrinking violet. He is willing to make his voice heard, especially on certain topics. You know, his nickname is not anything close to Quiet Wyatt, and I think, and I think we have an illustration of that. Sort of a look back and a tribute to Max's tenure here on the Guy Benson Show. He has not heard this. He's just going to play it. Max, hit it. I never know what to order because all the food is so good. Sometimes I crave ketchup, and that's why I order like an extra side of fries or something. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I do enjoy bacon. Tacos, fantastic. The smells, the taste, the texture. Yes. Everything was fantastic. So I really have a a new appreciation for sushi. Well, if they're free donuts, then I appreciate them a little more. My hometown is the birthplace of Helvita, Monroe, New York. I'm just waiting for the new uh, salmon-flavored ice cream. I despise truffle. Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry that you're so wrong about this. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, it's so good. Harry put that together. That was my brainchild. I said, Christine, we need that song, and we need Max. I said just three or four examples of him talking about food, and obviously they went deep into the archive of Bonus Benson and got a lot in there. And the one when I heard it for the first time this morning, the final version, I laughed out loud at the Velveeta line. I had forgotten about that. My hometown is the birthplace of Velveeta. And (laughs) I just cracked up. We talk about food constantly in these stupid home stretch segments, which get so much reaction from the audience. They're so much fun. And Max always had a very specific opinion. I mean, an extremely heartfelt and thought through opinion on culinary matters. And we wanted to uh, send you off with just sort of a reminder of some of those highlights. So many fantastic discussions on and off the air. And Max, we're going to miss you. And I'm going to miss you guys. That brought a tear to my eye, just, just to let you guys know. You've been more than, than just a team. You guys are a family. I never once been sad to go to work because I knew it was always going to be fun with you guys. And each one of you have taught me various different things. Wyatt, he's just going to be probably all of our bosses one day. I mean, that, that kid is incredible. And Guy, you've just like taught me just about like intellectual honesty. You don't say what people want to hear. You just say how it is what the facts are. And I always appreciated that. And Christine, well, there's Christine, isn't there? (laughs) No, Christine has taught me so much and she's going to help me and guide me through my next endeavor in TV. She's taught me so much just about producing, booking, talking and yelling at callers whenever we take callers. And just all the the memories, the lunches, the get-togethers that we've all had as a team, the Benson retreats. I mean, yes. all those are just memories that I'll have forever. And you guys have just been just so kind and, and so nice to me. And I just learned and I've grown with you guys for the past three years. And, well, and it's that just means fantastic. a lot. That means a lot, Max. And we're basically out of time here, and you just said that the, the montage that we played brought a tear to your eye. What brings a tear to my eye is your wrong opinions on truffles, among other things. They're gross. <laughs> but uh, go have a celebratory meal tonight. I'm sure you've thought it through very carefully. Your new adventure starts on Monday, Fox News primetime, helping on their booking team. We will be right back here, same time, same place, same show. On Monday, it's the Guy Benson Show saluting our friend, Max, his last show with us. Have a great weekend, everyone. Listen to be part of the conversation with me, Brian Kilmeade. I'll talk about the biggest stories of the day and get your take along with some of the biggest newsmakers around. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the podcast at BrianKilmeadeShow.com. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. 
Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.